Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Kimberly Flowers and I am the Director of Global Food Security here at CSIS and the Global Food Security Project. We have an excellent program for you today talking about urbanization and issues of food security and nutrition. When we talk about the problems of global food security, we often address um, population growth. But one of the things that's usually missing in that conversation is talking about the exponential growth that we see in cities, particularly secondary cities. The World Bank just a few months ago in September of 2015 projected that 54% of the world's population lives in urban areas today. And by 2045, that population is going to increase one and a half times to six billion. Close to 90% of that growth is happening in Asia and Africa. One of the gaps in the conversation is around data. We're not looking into this as much as we should or could. Another is talking about how in urban areas, households depend on food purchase as well as food access. And when urban, when urban communities and households don't have access to food, that can also lead to volatile situations and political instability. So urban areas are much more vulnerable than others to food price spikes. To start us off today, we have um, Dr. Nancy. <laughs> there I said it. There I said it. Dr. Nancy Stetson. Dr. Stetson is a special representative for food security for the U.S. State Department. We also have Dr. Schengen Fan, who's the Director General of IFPRI. Come on up. All right. Ah. I just jumped in. We're going to start a new trend for you. Okay. We're going to start a new trend for you with yes. your name. Come on over here. Right. Here. So. So. Nancy, yes. tell us why is this important, what should we be looking at, and what are some of the challenges and approaches that we should be thinking about? Wow, that's a big topic. I know. Uh, <laughs> great to talk. Well, first of all, thank you, Kimberly, for your kind introduction, and I want to thank CSIS for hosting this event, and of course, I want to thank my friend, Dr. Bond, and Ambassador Garbalink, and all you great panelists here, because I know this is a really important discussion. Um, and it's a rare discussion, I think, at least in this policymaking community in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. We have a tendency to um, think about food security and food insecurity as largely a rural problem. And it is a rural problem. We know that statistics have suggested for a long time now that the vast majority of hungry and poor people are in rural areas. We've also come to the conclusion over the last decade that, um, you know, the way to solve the food insecurity problem is through agricultural production. Mm. But more is happening. Agricultural production enough, as important as it is, is not going to be enough to solve both the, the challenge of having enough food for, for 9 billion people in 2050, mm -hmm. but more important, it doesn't address what's going on in urban and peri-urban areas. The thing is, cities, Cities aren't really talked about very much in the dialogue on global food security. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't really think of them as places where people live or places where people are malnourished. We kind of think of them in terms of how they relate to the rural areas. I mean, they're markets. They provide technical assistance. They provide services. But we never really say what's going on in the city. As Kimberly said, part of it's a data problem. And uh, I hope we can talk about data a little bit more mm -hmm. because I think there are a lot of data issues going on there. Part of it's a mindset. 
you know, part of it's a mindset. Um, so, you know, I think that having this discussion and beginning this discussion about urban areas is, is kind of edgy and <laughs> it's critical and, and it's really important. Um, you know, I want to go, I think there's so many things I could say and I don't want to say too much here. Uh, but part of it, I think, is looking at the fact that cities are different. They're all different. Small settlements of 500,000 are going to require different, have different needs, different local conditions than cities of a million. Cities of a million are going to be bigger, have different problems than from one to 10 million. And those mega cities have yet another set of challenges that they present to us. What I found interesting is I've looked at this issue over the last year and a half, and it really stemmed, my interest in this urban mm -hmm. stuff really began when I first came into the job because I was talking to one of my um, colleagues in the administration who was trying to school me a bit, if you will, on global food security. And I said, well, you know, it's great that we focus on rural areas, but what about, you know, what about urban areas? Every time I go to Vietnam and from my, in my previous life as a foreign policy and national security advisor to the now Secretary of State, I made a lot of trips to Hanoi. And I said, you know, every time I go to Hanoi, there's some kid always following me around, you know, pulling out my elbow saying, give me money, give me money. Now, A, they were probably the most persistent kids in the world, I don't know, but they certainly seemed to be. And B, yes, if you gave them a dollar, they could spend that money on everything. But something tells me that these kids were hungry. And I said, well, what if, you know, we're talking about kids in these kind of areas. And it was like, well, the global food security doesn't think about that. I mean, the global food security community doesn't really talk about that very much. Academics do, researchers may, but really nobody really talks about it. And I said, well, you know, that just doesn't seem right to me. Hunger and malnutrition exist everywhere, and where they, where they exist, we need to address them, be it rural, be it peri-urban, be it urban. But the odd thing is, if you look at what's going on in terms of cities, take the sustainable cities movement, take those people. Lots of articles in the Post and other places about, oh, we need smart cities here, we need smart cities there. Who could, who could not agree with that? Of course we need smart cities. But you know the smart city people, and the maybe not so smart city people, they don't really talk about food security or malnutrition. There is an assumption in city areas that people have money and jobs albeit we all know that everybody doesn't. Let's look at the slum populations in a variety of cities around the world, be it Mumbai, be it mm. Lagos. And they, there's an assumption that let's not talk about it. So the city people don't talk about it either. So we have this kind of weird conundrum where we've got people working on cities, people working on food security, and nobody thinking about how you make the train meet. And I think part of the challenge that we have before us is to figure out how to get these two groups together we have to then think of it. And why should we do it? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, it matters first and foremost because if we're going to achieve this year's sustainable development goals, which are markedly different from the Millennium Development Goals, because those talk about reducing and reducing malnutrition. Now we are talking about eliminating hunger and eliminating malnutrition. And we can't do it without talking about urban air. It's a non-starter. That's number one. I think the second thing is from the US government perspective, President Obama has talked about food security as a moral imperative, which it is. I mean, mm -hmm. it's an economic imperative, and you know what? It's a national security imperative. Look at the food riots in 2008, 2009. They were in cities. Cities. And we answered with a solution that focused largely on rural areas and ag production. Look at 
Look at the people leaving Syria, the refugees that are streaming in New York. A lot of those refugees moved initially from the countryside to the cities. Climate was bad, they couldn't grow food. They got into the cities. It, it was more tumultuous, there was more turmoil, there was more disenfranchisement. Well, I don't want to say disenfranchisement because we're talking about Syria. But there were more factors that made them want to move. And now they're streaming into Europe. And look what's coming with them, all the attendant problems with them. So food security has a huge national security implication for us. And letting it lie unaddressed in city areas is stupid. It's a national security threat. Not just to us, but it's also a stability threat to all of those countries that have ever-growing cities. And the data shows us, number three, that the countries that are most food insecure today, unfortunately, are likely to be even more insecure in 10 years. The intelligence community has done, they've been working on an assessment on food security for, what, four years, five years. It's changed forms a number of times, but it's finally come out. And I would actually urge people to look at it because it's available online now. And it's very good. And it talks about it talks about what it calls threats and risks um, in the food security uh, dimension, if you will, to countries and, and others. <coughs> Excuse me, to countries. And one of the um, one of the things it tells us is, and I think you made Your reference to this. Your mic is not working exactly, so we're uh -oh. going to use this. You mean I have to do that again? No, I think, I think they are. Nice. Could you hear her in the back? But now no. you'll be able to hear her better. No okay, one, better no with the microphone. No one's going to want to hear this. All right, can you hear me? No one's going to want to hear this more than once. But the point is that the intelligence community assessment, which I recommend to all of you to read, is, is interesting. I mean, obviously it's written from the perspective of the U.S. government, so it talks about kind of general keynote assumptions or findings, I should say, not assumptions, uh, but findings that a number of countries of interest to us in both economic security terms and national security terms are, and they are countries which are very food insecure now are gonna be worse off in 10 years. The other thing it tells us is that a lot of the countries in Africa and Asia, as you said, Kimberly, are countries which have exploding populations in terms of urban growth, both small settlements, middle-sized cities, and obviously megacities. There is a demographic trend that we cannot, or we ignore, I should say, at our own peril, and that is that people are moving off the farms for a lot of different reasons. And so our strategies now tend to be, oh, well, you know, what can we do to keep them on the farm? And yes, we don't want people on the farm to be poor. We don't want them to be hungry. I am not in any way saying that our current efforts, which are focused on rural areas primarily, are wrong or a waste of money or anything. We should be focusing there, but we shouldn't be focusing only there because we need to get ahead of the curve because 10 years from now, if we don't, we're gonna be looking at the kind of crisis that we saw in 2008 and 2009 when we started thinking about, oh my God, what are we gonna do now? People are really hungry, people are pretty poor, and the numbers aren't going down as quickly as we would like. If we don't address this issue now, they're gonna be even bigger 10 years out. So we need to get ahead of this curve. And hopefully I can talk a little bit about what we're doing to try to do that. So yes. thank you. Thanks. Shengen, can we, why don't you talk and we'll see if the mic is working. <laughs> okay, is it working? Yes. Very good, okay, well it's a pleasure to be here. I just wanted to add four points um, to what uh, Nancy uh, has just said. So number one is, I agree with her, data is really a big problem. We even don't know how to define a city, how to define an urban center. And I traveled to Nigeria 
Look at the Ibadan. How many of you have been in Ibadan? Yes, six million people live in that city. But if you visit the households there, it's like a big village. No running water, no access to electricity. Every household raise some chickens, some vegetables, some fruits. Yes, they are big cluster of villages. And in the meantime, somewhere in Japan, even in a small village, they have everything you have here mm. in the city. And they work in the city. They commute to the city. One hour, two hours by train. So how do you define, are they rural or urban residents? Mm. So it's a big, big issue. And uh, yes, we know that uh, we still have 800, uh, there are million people suffering from hunger and malnutrition. Do we know how many of them are from rural areas? How many of them are from urban areas? No, we don't. So we've got to work with the data. Good definition, good data. That's number one point. Mm -hmm. Number two is, yes, we know that majority of the poor and hungry people are still in rural areas. I mean, even without a clear definition. Yes, they are. At least probably, I think, third quarter of them are in rural areas at this moment. And they are poor and hungry. They live on agriculture. Many of them are smallholders. Right now, it's a 500 million small family farms. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the poor and the hungry people are the smallholders. So that's the current situation right now. Yes, very much in rural areas. But as Jennifer, as Nancy said, the world is urbanized very fast, and particularly in Asia. So by 2050, 80% of the population in the region will be in urban areas. A good, good definition of urban area, not the Ibadana. So they will have access to electricity, water. They will enjoy uh, some of the um, sort of uh, all these good things from the city. And that creates huge challenges and opportunities. The challenge is how we are going to feed them. They will demand more food, better food. They will use more water. They will use more land. So the challenge part uh, is critical. And then opportunities. Opportunities not only for the people in the city, but also in rural areas, even here in America. How are you going to feed them? 600 million middle class Asians in the next two or three decades. Hmm. How are we going to feed this? So both challenges and opportunities. And that's my number two point. So number three point is <clears throat> um, we need a different strategies to deal with urban hungry people. We cannot use the same strategies for the uh, rural hungry people. Because the rural people, you know, they produce their own food and, uh, you know, they have something to eat as long as they produce something. But for the urban population, they're particularly vulnerable to price changes, to market shocks. Well, we have already heard about the situation in Middle East. The whole Arab Spring started with a young Tunisian man. He's from urban areas. He burned himself because of higher food prices. And that triggered a whole color changes. I think today we are still struggling with that. So that's right. So, but that does not mean it comes from urban areas. It's an urban problem, urban challenges. But because higher food prices came from the lack of food production, lack of supply from agriculture from rural areas. So to me, it's all interlinked. So we cannot use the same strategy to deal with urban poor. They spend, I think, 
probably 80%, even 90% of the food is purchased from the market, not from their own production. You know, compared to rural poor, you know, they, they spend lots of what they eat and not what they eat, but not for, for the um, rural, uh, not for the urban poor. The second is the, um, the triple burden of malnutrition in urban areas is particularly a problem. The triple burden. Number, number one burden is undernourishment. The people simply do not have enough to eat. They are short, they are wasted. The second is a lack of micronutrients. We call it hidden hunger. Iron, zinc, vitamins, the minerals, vitamins. And that, that sort of hunger can be easily or could be equally damaging than the visible hunger. Mm -hmm. The third one, it's even more challenging than the rural hungry people, that's overweight and obesity. Right. Now, if you travel to India, China, you will see a lot of fat babies from the cities, Shanghai. 40% of newborn children are either overweight and obese, and that will affect their whole life. So compared to undernutrition, this overweight obesity are equally damaging mm -hmm. to their intelligence, to their physical ability. This is like a time bomb. So we, if we don't deal with it. So triple burden. Huh? Then number three is, I think <coughs> different strategies are. We have heard a lot about so-called urban agriculture, the buzzword, right? I like urban agriculture, and that's Ibadan, right? You see every city resident have a small vegetable garden, raise some chickens, they are more or less even self-sufficient in, in the city. But don't be too naive. I still think most of the food still have to be produced in rural areas, in agriculture, and use the value chain, supply chain, to link smallholders in agriculture in rural areas to urban markets so that people can purchase, can access to that through markets. So I would rather to use a value chain to link rural areas to the urban centers that everybody can benefit. Because urban agriculture in certain areas can be great, particularly peri-urban agriculture, right? That's great. But bring your agriculture produ production to a highly, it's a dense population, dense cities, you will bring lots of different challenges, food safety issues, animal diseases. You know, the 80% of the human diseases come from animals. We have already seen that in Asia, Vietnam, where you have lived, China, even influenza, SARS, all this came from animals. Well, even Ebola came from animals, right? I'm afraid, you know, if we move all this so-called animal production to the city centers, you will see more things like Ebola. So let's make sure that when we develop a so-called urban agriculture, mm -hmm. we pay attention to food safety, to human health, how animal diseases will not be jumped to, to human. Then um, I think for the urban poor, another strategy, different strategies for urban poor and hungry people, they will rely more on social protection, social protection, more than rural poor or hungry people because simply they don't have. Now how, how are we going to use that? We must link the social protection to nutritious food, not just a high calorie, carrying intense food. So you will, you, you will exacerbate the overweight obesity issues. And finally, I think fundamentally, for the urban residents to solve their food security issues, 
It's inclusive growth. Everybody can access to income, accessibility issues. If you look at the, the definition of food security, mm. one of the elements is accessibility. You must have the income. And then you access the food from market, well-functioned food, uh, uh, food market. You can access to nutritious, healthy, and, and a, a safe food. My final, final point is, let's also not forget the sanitation problem. Sanitation accounts at least one-third of the undernutrition issues. And uh, sanitation must be part of the food security, nutrition security issues when we tackle the urban food security. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Shenkan. You know, Nancy, you, you called it a stability threat, which I like. I'm going to steal that from you. And you called it a time bomb. And both of those are very powerful words from people who have spent a long career, um, both in the diplomacy and the research space. We're at a really interesting time right now when you think of U.S. leadership in this effort because Feed the Future is coming up on its you know, fifth year of its most of its strategy. We have a new administration coming in. So a question I have for both of you, um, and I'll start with you, Nancy, is you know, what specific policy recommendations would you give to the next administration? I mean, I think it's very clear um, you, you made a, a, the great point of Feed the Future is, is very focused on the rural communities and when you look at their metrics and now that the results are coming out, they're talking about 12 million rural households and why that's wonderful and important and we can see success there as they start to shift into the next administration thinks about how to rework some of those programs. What are some specific recommendations on where we can focus or create programs um, to, to do more on urbanization? Well, and I'm going to give this back to you. Oh, yeah. Is this not working? I guess not. Okay. <laughs> Was I supposed to flip something on? I don't think it's you. I think it's just on. a technical okay. issue. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, well, yes. I mean, we're very proud of Feed the Future. We think it's doing great work. Um, but Feed the Future, you know, grew out of really the G8 summit in okay. 2008, uh, 2008. And um, in choosing countries, because it followed the Rome principles where we want countries involved, we want them to be able to have national plans. You know, it, it, it wound up being in a set of countries where we basically had willing governments, governments that wanted to tackle it, many of them obviously in Africa, which, uh, you know, is the logical first place to start given the fact that, to their credit, the Africans were kind of ahead of the curve in recognizing the need to focus on food security and develop their agricultural sectors, and they've done a lot. But they were also willing to take the steps and encourage the investments, not only from others, outside donors, private sector, but also us. So, but I think for the next administration, and you know, your question's relevant because we've been talking about this for, for the last several months, which is how do we sort of institutionalize what we have and where do we go with it? I mean. And I don't want to get off on a, a, a stick about Feed the Future. Obviously, we'd like to see the legislation that keeps the program going uh, pass. So if any of you are out there and have any influence on my uh, people on the Hill, then I suggest that you lobby for that. But beyond that, um, the administration, those of us in the administration now want to leave a legacy. And obviously, the president, this is a huge issue for him, so he wants to leave a legacy. So one is keeping what we're doing and finding ways to expand it monetarily, which isn't easy, given the tight budget situation. But 
but also bringing other donors in and re making, I think, them realize that everybody has to contribute because just as these SDGs are global globes, this is a global effort. But secondly, I think that we are beginning to look at where we want to put our priorities in this last year. One of them is on climate, the nexus between climate and food security. But a second set of priorities, which we in the State Department are pushing, and I, I'm quite convinced my friends in AID and other, particularly AID, uh, want to work on this as well, which is introducing the urban dimension to what we do. Now let's not, I'm not going to kid you, if we start expanding our programs into urban areas, we're going to need no, more money. Because if you don't have more money, then you have to make a choice, which is more important. And so what we need to tee up for the next administration, I think, and what we're trying to do out of my office is really kind of be a messenger for the importance of expanding programs into the urban area, not just for governments, but also for the private sector, which tends to focus on rural areas as well. And, you know, I don't want to see us in this position where it's an either or. Oh, we have to cut here to work there. We have to be able to compelling argument. And I think, frankly, politically, it's going to be a little tricky. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a little tricky because we all know that Food security, we know, for example, that agricultural committees on the Hill, as well as the Foreign Affairs Committee, support rural efforts. And they support it for domestic reasons, among other things, as well as international reasons. But as you move to the cities, the first question is, well, you know, why are we going to need to the city? Why should we spend money there? Isn't that the problem of the local government? Isn't that the problem of the local cities? So the other part, in addition to convincing people on the Hill, is going to be us starting now to develop partnerships with not only the groups like Bloomberg that work on cities, but also maybe these cities in Africa and Asia that are going to be the hardest hit and helping them develop the partnerships that they're going to need to solve this because frankly they're going to have to solve it with other players and with other sources of money besides the traditional ODA that comes from government. Right. So I would hope in a year from now you will hear the outgoing crowd saying to the incoming crowd, we have to be broader in our thinking and we have to change our mindset to recognize we need to work along the whole spectrum from the rural area to the cities and that both urban areas and rural areas need to support and each other so that productivity in one way or another, productivity uh -huh. grows in the rural area, but incomes grow in both. Right. Is there anything, actually, you should just keep that. Oh, It's okay. all yours it's now. It's just me? It's okay. just you. <laughs> okay. You're very, spe you're very special. Is there anything? special <laughs> That's right. Is there anything you want to add on the policy space? And then I want to dive into more data well, First, questions. let me say that uh, uh, IPRI has been working with the Feed of the Future as a good partner. We provide yes. a knowledge support, research support, mm -hmm. evaluation support uh, in some of the countries like Ethiopia and Bangladesh. So we have done a lot of household survey. We're mm. talking about more than 5,000 households, huh? and we survey them every year. So by doing that, we'll be able to track, monitor the progress. For these two countries, a tremendous progress has been achieved. Not mm. only smallholders' productivity, more important is child stunting yeah. has come down. Sure From the real evidence, huh? it's not just a it's hunger data. Yeah. I think it's 16%. Yeah, so it's just, just a tremendous. Yeah, just in those zones of influence. So I wanted yeah. to say that. But now, I think for, okay, the. The rural hungry people and urban hungry, they are actually two, two sides of one coin. I'll tell you why. But they are interlinked. I traveled to, to Africa quite a bit, like uh, to Nigeria, Abuja and, uh, uh, and Lagos. So you, you see a, a dilemma there. On the one hand, the urban residents' income are really increasing. Uh, even middle class, middle class families, 
in the cities are really increasing very fast. But do you know what they eat? They eat imported food, rice, wheat, bread. They would like to have toast for their breakfast. In the meantime, just 10 kilometers just like away. Us. Huh? Just like us. Well, <laughs> 10 kilometers away, these smallholders are producing beautiful, nutritious fruits, vegetables, cassava. Just that 10 kilometers. How can we make that link? So these smallholders, 10 kilometers away, can produce nutritious, healthy food to feed increased middle-class families in Abuja, in Lagos. Then the city, poor hungry, will be able to benefit, and the smallholders <coughs> will also be benefit. So in the next phase of the Feed of the Future, I would rather to look at the link, to not, not necessarily urban versus rural, or rural versus urban, the continuum. to take that, yeah, that issue as yeah. one. Right. Good. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip my data question, but I, I, we might want to dive into that a little bit more. But I want to give the audience a chance um, to ask questions before we move on to our second panel. Um, if you have a question, raise your hand. We'll, we'll lump a few together. Um, Caitlin, right there. And please introduce yourself okay. and your organization. So hi, my name is Diane DiBernardo, and I'm a nutrition advisor in USAID's Bureau for Food Security. And I really hate hearing my voice echo, so I apologize for <laughs> feeling weird about this. But um, we focus nearly exclusively on stunting and feed the future. And then we also look to an extent at anemia and wasting, but it's all under nutrition. So I'm wondering if you would recommend for the next administration to consider focusing also on overweight and obesity and um, follow on um, programs within Feed the Future. Great, good Thank question. You. We'll lump a few together before we answer in the interest of time. Are there other questions? Um, right there. Mm -hmm. Hello. <laughs> if you talk really loudly. Great. Take one more question and then we'll have to answer quickly. Let's do right here in the front. Yeah. Gordon West. Gordon West, Independent. Um, you commented the role of the private sector and that the private sector perhaps also focuses on rural versus urban. It seems to me that's a, um, a primary link between rural and urban. Many who invest in the rural areas are looking at urban markets as part of their philosophy and it seems like they could be very well a, a dominant leader in, in developing the linkages. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if that's great. Um, I'll give you both a chance to respond to which, what you would like of okay. those questions. Yes, on the, uh, okay, the pay more attention to overweight obesity. Absolutely, yes, of course. Okay, so what indicators should we use? The stunting takes long time. You know, it's a long-term indicator. You, know, you are not going to have impact tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, even after one or two years. I would suggest we use diet diversity. Diet diversity, good balanced diet, right? Mm -hmm. 
some vegetables, fruits, dairy products, some meat, some fish, and some rice and wheat, more balanced diet. Although we still, don't, we still try to figure out what would be a balanced diet. But balanced diet depends on your location, contact, depends on your age, your gender. But a more balanced diet mm -hmm. will be much better to measure the food security issues huh? because the nutrition itself is affected by so many factors. So that's uh, my, my answer to you. So moving towards sort of more intermediate sort of uh, indicator. Now, the <clears throat> I usually don't like sort of a central planning type. Maybe I lived in a central planning for a long time. But, but I think some sort of a city code would be very important there yeah, to, to make sure that the the, um, the, the urban centers are well designed, well planned, particularly the markets, uh, markets, well regulated markets. I worked on India before, so they, they designed certain sort of um, markets in one place uh, and another. I think that work can work very well. Now, the, the private sector, how the private sector can promote the city market, uh, uh, city, let's say, markets, right? Yes, of course. Don't just bring foods from other countries that to feed the urban population. Promote local markets that can use the agricultural products produced from that country, from neighboring, let's say, villages, that you will do much, let's say, better help to the urban population there and also uh, the rural poor and hungry people. The private sector must do that. I think there is a great opportunity for them to do it. Thank you, Shengen. Okay, well, I'll go quickly. I think we're yes, getting close. Yes, I know. <laughs> I agree with Shengen. On the nutrition side, yes, we do need to expand our efforts. Again, we need to find money to expand our efforts, but we need to do it. Secondly, with respect to the private sector, they're critical. I mean, they're critical across this whole problem of food insecurity and malnutrition. But in addition to focusing on markets, I mean, yes, they're investors. Ultimately, they, they may have pilot projects, but they want things to work. They want to find new places to put their money. They want to be able to sell products and move products. But I think moving is another another area. When you think about urban areas, there's two things we should remember. And I mean, by urban, I'm really sort of taking the whole range except for maybe the 500,000 settlement. And even here, it's important. Number one, in order to have food security in these areas, if people aren't as middle class and can't always go to the market and buy food, they and even if they can, they need to cook it. They need water. They need fuel. So looking in urban areas and peri-urban areas in terms of food security, we have to look at that nexus between electricity and I mean energy and water and food. And that means that private sector players and all those different sectors need to play a role. They need to, and frankly, I think they can play a role in terms of helping, maybe not city planning like in some countries that we don't want where there's too much planning. But at the same time, I think some of these mayoral, mayoral, you know, sort of types are going to need help. The other thing the private sector can do is, look, we need better refrigeration to move those products from the rural area to the, to the city areas. We need better roads and transportation. Climate can screw up even roads. So there are a lot of things that they can play a role in as well as governments. Jordan's first question. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, the problem is urban planning doesn't think about food security, right. and that's the point I want to make. That urban planners, if you work with people who do urban planning, you need to do, introduce food security and nutrition into the dialogue because it's critically important. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Let's give a quick round of applause for these two speakers. <laughs>
and have a second set of panelists come up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, let me begin. And what I my name is Bill Garvlink, and I'm actually now senior advisor at the International Medical Corps, but I'm also a senior advisor here at the Center for Strategic International Studies. What I'll propose to do is I'll introduce each person briefly. I think you have their, their information. And then each person will speak briefly. I'll ask a question to get things started and then turn it over to the, the office or to the audience. Uh, to my right is Gloria Steele, who's the senior deputy assistant administrator for the Asia Bureau. And I think you just returned a month or two ago from five years as the aid mission director in the Philippines. That's right. And Gloria has held senior positions during her career in AID with, I think, just about every bureau AID has had, <laughs> four or five of them more. So she's one of the senior aid officials. Dr. Mark Cohen is the senior researcher at Oxfam, and he's worked with IFPRI with Schengen years before and Bread for the World. And uh, he's, in addition to this job, he, he teaches at, uh, at Johns Hopkins at SAIS and has a lot of experience with this. My colleague, Ashley Arabasati, is uh, the senior officer in the Global Engagement Unit at International Medical Corps. Uh, before that, I think she joined International Medical Corps in 2010. Before that, she worked for USAID and the Global Health Bureau. And uh, she has a lot of experience all over the place in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, maybe you can ask her afterwards. She did graduate work in uh, England at the University of Durham in paleopathology, whatever that is. <laughs> um, so maybe at some point she can tell a few of us what, what she actually studied. <laughs> <coughs> so with that, 
I'll turn it over to Gloria and we'll just work right down the line. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, when Bill contacted me maybe a month ago or, mm -hmm. or less to talk about food security in urban areas, secondary cities in particular, I was really quite excited. I've spent a lot of my time working on food security. Uh, when I was working in the Philippines, I was working for the Department of Agriculture and then uh, spent a lot of my time in USAID on, um, on agriculture issues, rural development agriculture issues. Um, and food security. I managed a food security project with Michigan State, which I think continues. Um, but as Nancy said, when, when somebody brings up food security, one always talks about agriculture, agri food production, rural areas. Um, but as all of you know, uh, you don't grow your own food and most of you live in urban areas. And so there's that part that has not received attention. And I think in response to one of the questions earlier, I don't think it should be one or the other. And um, I think both of them are linked. And so when I, when I was able to get an opportunity to try, I'd been thinking about how one links it, how one really addresses food security. One of the first things I did when I arrived in the Philippines was turn my own thinking upside down, not work um, on agriculture and rural development. So you will see that uh, when you look at the portfolio of the Philippines, there's nothing on agriculture. Um, and one of the things that, because many others are working, and not because I don't think it's important, but many others are working in that area. And I thought I would complement it by looking at secondary cities, linking secondary cities with uh, rural areas, the link that, uh, you, you talked about earlier. So I started pilot testing this idea, and just before I left the Philippines, uh, launched a very scaled up version because the pilot idea worked. Uh, the project, which is called uh, Strengthening Urban Resilience for Growth with Equity, is a focus on secondary cities, growing secondary cities. And the idea is um, linking secondary cities with areas around them, which are still rural areas. Um, our pilot was quite successful, and I thought that we, what we did was we worked with um, municipal governments in, in, the city, in the secondary cities that agreed to participate with us to work on governance issues, corruption issues, streamlining their business processes, making them more competitive, making their cities more livable, and agreeing to adopt more environmentally resilient policies, the idea being to make them competitive and attract investors to come into the city. And by attracting investors to come into the city, our desire, which, which happened in the pilot areas, was to uh, create income opportunities, to increase incomes of those who are already there, and then link these cities very closely to the rural, rural areas. What it did was it increased the incomes of the urban population to be able to purchase the food that they needed in order to be food secure. We couple this with nutrition education programs so that they don't get, you know, they don't just eat anything but eat nutritionally nutritious foods. Um, and then it created a market for farmers to sell their goods and their services when they were not farming. Um, it then also addressed the rural food insecurity issue. An important part of this project was the link. Um, and in the Philippines, which are, you know, which is made up of, of uh, islands, it was very important to get the market, the agriculture market, closer 
to the farmers because, as you all know, those who are engaged in agriculture, there's very little money to be had in agriculture, and they're mostly perishable. And so if they all have to go to the metropolitan areas of Manila and the cities surrounding Manila, by then they would have no income left, no profit left. So my thinking was to move Manila closer to the farmers, but make them more environmentally resilient, and therefore achieve a more balanced food security um, agenda, where both urban and rural um, uh, uh, populations are more food secure. And um, the other thing was, because there's very little money to be had in agriculture, my desire, my hope, is that those who cannot be competitive in agriculture or those who don't really want to be in agriculture are able to go to the secondary cities and by growing the secondary cities provide um, livelihood opportunities for them. So growing the secondary cities was intended to grow a market for the farmers and, grow, uh, and, and develop livelihood opportunities for them as well as the urban, uh, as well as the urban population. Uh, with the end result of uh, trying to make the growth more inclusive, uh, trying to address food security issues for both areas, and making it an environmentally resilient um, and therefore sustainable operation, both, uh, both in the rural and the urban areas. Hopefully, as uh, Mark, Michael Spence says in his uh, book uh, in 2009, 2008, Urbanization and Growth, Part, uh, an intrinsic part of, um, of the economic transformation process is urban, you know, urbanization is an intrinsic part of the, of the economic transformation process. And there's mostly no middle income country that does not become mostly urban. And that uh, most of these urban areas, are their growth is fueled by urban manufacturing and services. And so we, we can't stop the transformation process, but I think we can manage this in a way that achieves our goals of sustainability, food security, and, uh, and a, uh, an inclusive growth uh, for all. So we don't stop it, we manage it, and we take advantage of that process that will normally happen to achieve the goals that we've been talking about here. Let me stop there and, uh, and uh, move on to Thank Michael. You. Mark, over to you. Thanks, Bill. Uh, is the mic working? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Otherwise, I can talk very loud if it's not. So I think um, if we go back uh, about 40 years to the mid-1970s, uh, we talked a lot in the mid-1970s about a world food crisis. Uh, and at that time, the thinking about uh, food security, uh, as we've heard already, was very much focused on this as a rural problem. But I think uh, that is really when we started talking about, you know, food security isn't just making more food available. There's also a question of access, utilization, meaning good nutrition, mm -hmm. and increasingly we think about stability too, uh, uh, keeping the prices stable especially. Um, as we've started to notice that the world is urbanizing, uh, the thinking hasn't urbanized along with it. So I, I think there's a tendency to look at urban hunger, urban food security as still a problem of avail availability. There was a big conference about two years ago at the University of Pennsylvania. It was called Feeding the Cities. It's not, not how do urban people access food, but 
how do we produce enough food for the cities? Uh, that wasn't the exclusive focus of the conference, but panel after panel was about, well, we have precision agriculture, that'll boost supply. Uh, we can use GMOs to uh, produce more food. We can do this, we can do that. So that's great, but how are the people in the cities going to get that food? Um, there's also a focus on markets. So uh, let's talk about street foods. Let's talk about urban agriculture and how that gets distributed. Uh, let's talk about having good retail outlets. And I think uh, uh, the example from the audience about DC, you know, there, there aren't a lot of really good supermarkets or farmers markets uh, east of the Anacostia River. Mm -hmm. uh, but how do urban consumers get access to that food? Uh, so we know that urban people, even if they have a little vegetable garden, even if they in Ibadan have a few chickens, they mostly purchase their yes. food. So their incomes are crucial to this equation. I mean, all the supply side factors are very important, and I don't mean to diminish those, but we also need to focus on the demand side. Uh, what kind of jobs are available? What kind of opportunities to perhaps own a microenterprise are available in cities? Uh, Schengen mentioned social protection, very important, and the good news is uh, it's a lot easier to deploy social protection programs in an urban setting you can organize things, uh, people aren't as spread out. Uh, likewise, in addition to public social protection, there can be private charity. Uh, there are many ways uh, to, uh, that urban people have what Amartya Sen, uh, I think in the US context it's a little unfortunate, but what he calls entitlements. How do people normally access food? We need to focus on those things. And I think Talking about secondary cities, and Gloria uh, has already talked about this a little bit. So these are smaller cities where there often are very strong links to agriculture, uh, which facilitates uh, some of these things. Uh, and so there are job opportunities, for example, in providing services to rural areas, tools, implements, uh, seeds, uh, uh, fertilizer, uh, all of which can be produced in the cities and then move to the rural areas. But also, uh, there are plenty of smaller cities where people commute to rural areas for jobs. In Colombia, when it's coffee harvest time, people from smaller cities and towns go to the rural areas to help with the harvest. So there are a lot of possibilities uh, uh, for livelihoods uh, based on those urban-rural links, and it's very important uh, I think, to, to pursue those. Uh, and that, that really brings me to the uh, third and final point I want to make, which is about policy. So uh, national policies that facilitate uh, urban food security are important. And as, as Nancy said, uh, uh, often, uh, particularly in capital cities, uh, they're important to government's uh, survival in office. Uh, but Equally important are municipal policies. So does the municipal government, uh, uh, rather than saying, uh, for example, uh, food vendors, uh, uh, you know, they're a nuisance, they don't engage in uh, hygienic practices, let's just drive them out of business. Rather, do the municipal governments actually provide uh, policies that help food vendors engage in good practices? 
is there an association of food vendors that can engage in a dialogue with the municipal government? Likewise, instead of saying there's too many chickens here in Ibadan, we've got to get rid of them, they, they poop all over the place, does the municipal government, say, have a department of urban agriculture uh, that can appropriately regulate but also facilitate uh, urban agricultural activities? Uh, uh, the municipal government obviously is very important in administering social protection. Uh, so uh, I think that municipal policy and working uh, with municipal governments on food security issues and integrating, as Nancy said, food security into urban planning is, is also a crucial part of this picture. And with that, it's yours. <laughs> So I like uh, batting cleanup because most of my points have already been made. So this is going to be really, really easy. easy. Yeah, very easy. Um, just a disclaimer, I do work for International Medical Corps, which is a disaster and humanitarian response organization that started in 1984 with doing training to surgeons in Afghanistan. We've grown since then to almost 70 countries, um, and we do programs in primary health care, water sanitation hygiene, mental health, gender and sexual-based violence, and also nutrition and food securities. So we are in the disaster business, and unfortunately over the past few years, our business has been very, very good. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna take this a little bit outside of what the, all of the panelists have been talking about to bring a little bit of the NGO perspective into response and combating some of the urban food security issues that we're seeing. The first is that we're seeing an increase in not only natural disasters, but humanitarian conflicts for Syria, Iraq, South Sudan, and Yemen. They prolonged humanitarian needs that in part fueled this enormous request from yesterday for the UN humanitarian appeal for $20 billion. That is an enormous amount of humanitarian needs that they're projecting. Um, we're also expecting a huge backlash from El Nino, which has been going on for a little while, but in Central America, where there's already over two million people in need of immediate uh, food assistance and also humanitarian, we're also talking about the prolonged drought in Ethiopia, um, making a bad problem even worse. Mm -hmm. Um, so what does that mean? We have more people leaving the areas where they come from, their countries of origin, and moving on to different places. And much like in World War II, they're streaming to cities. And the reason I bring up World War II is because we're seeing refugees in the amount of 60 million, which hasn't been seen since World War II. This is a tremendous amount of people that are flooding into cities. Um, half of these refugees, more than half, are women and children. And UNHCR is saying that a half of who they are servicing, which is the UN High Commission for Refugees, are no longer living in camps. They're moving into cities themselves. Now, if you take Lebanon, Lebanon's population has increased by one-third. This is a huge strain on the infrastructure. Um, and actually, for Syrian refugees living in Jordan, where they have the largest humanitarian camp set up for this purpose, 80% of Syrian refugees are living in cities. That's enormous. That's huge. Um, I think because everyone has the idea that cities are better, this is where you can get jobs, you can have money, you can provide children, there's health care, there's education, and there's food. And we know that that's not necessarily true, especially for refugees coming from such conflict places such as Syria and Iraq. There's often a stigma attached, they can't get jobs, food is more expensive, they're living in environments that are not healthy. So the food that they can have access to or they can afford is not very nutritious. Like everyone was, was making this point of you now have a rising crisis of obesity because you have highly processed, uh, high sugar, high fat content food because it happens to be less expensive than fruits and vegetables. And if parents can, for some, for 
through some hope, get their hands on nutritious food, they lack a kitchen in which to prepare them. You're lacking these safe spaces for a lot of the refugees. Um, and that's not even considering the effects on the host community. So people in Lebanon who are already living in Beirut um, now have crowded access to healthcare, their education system, waste management, um, public transportation, jobs. Um, people are losing their jobs to refugees who will often work illegally and for a lot less money. It's a compounding huge problem of how do you feed this growing refugee crisis. Um, it's something that the humanitarian sector needs to address and needs to start thinking innovatively, think outside the box, and actually look at a lot of the programs that humanitarian organizations and NGOs have been doing and tweak this so that you have this niche of urban food security, urban humanitarian response. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Let me, I have a question. Uh, well, you think about what you'd like to ask. I have a question for each of our panelists. If, Gloria, if I could start with you, I know one thing I've noticed looking at the, the, the urban uh, situation is sometimes, and if you could apply this to the Philippines, there's sometimes there's a disagreement or, or a lack of attention by national authorities as opposed to municipal authorities. Mm -hmm. They have very different perspectives, That's and I wondered if you ran into that. Uh, actually, no, um, not, not in the Philippines, and I'm sure it is true in other places. Um, and in fact, uh, they've worked very well together in terms of synchronizing the national policies with the municipal policies. And the, uh, the secretary of the national, the planning um, department has begun to take a look at this and really take an interest. In fact, this project I was talking about is now gonna be run out of his, uh, his department because he wants to be able to exactly see the link mm -hmm. between national policymaking and municipal policymaking. And rather than look at uh, the world from a sectoral point of view alone, is to look at it geographically, the urban and the rural, uh, so that they cross cut. So perhaps the Philippines is an exception here, but there, there are often uh, disagreements in policies at yeah. national and local levels. Great, thank you. Mark, just if you could elaborate, you touched on it very briefly, but the impact of the higher food prices that started in 2008 and then, you know, that they have remained high and, and the, now it's become much more volatile. And what does that do to the urban dweller? Well, precisely because people in urban settings uh, rely on purchases, they're much more sensitive to rising prices and thus, uh, particularly in uh, 2008, we saw uh, protests and sometimes violence and uh, we heard a bit already about the Arab Spring having an intimate relationship to rising food prices, but, but looking at how it affects people, um, in the absence of some sort of program uh, to, mi to mitigate those effects, uh, and, and that could be a social protection mm -hmm. program, for example, or uh, some, some effort to, uh, uh, by the government to dampen uh, the rise in prices. But in the absence of that, uh, people will most likely uh, change their diets, try and buy uh, cheaper foods, which may be less healthy, as, as we've yeah. also heard a bit. Um, they may cut uh, other things out of their household budgets, uh, take kids out of school and send them to work. Uh, so 
there are, is the potential, and, and, and we've seen evidence of this uh, going back to 2007, 2008, of very negative coping strategies in the absence of a favorable policy response. And, and I think the brunt of this is often felt in urban areas because there's less opportunity to, say, fall back on subsistence production as many rural people can do. Sure. Oh, great. And actually, you mentioned, uh, and everybody sees, that, th that there's a growing number of refugees and internally displaced people, and they're moving to cities, all of them. And, well, not all the people, but uh, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> and um, as from the NGO uh, perspective, what kind of activities could NGOs more often engage in that might affect the food insecurity and malnutrition of these two particular populations, IDPs and, and refugees. I mean, I think that we're. I think that there's there's a, a huge amount of room for innovative um, partnerships with the private sector, just as was mentioned before. Um, I do think that NGOs or civil society organizations need to first recognize that they're working in urban environments, um, International Medical Corps included. You know, when I said we do urban programming, said so we do. I said yes, we work in Mogadishu. Oh yes, that's a city. So we do. We just need to kind of tailor. We need to tailor our programs to to fit. Now, what I know that community gardens or rooftop gardens or vertical greenhouses aren't a huge sustainable solution, but more more thinking outside of the box for what we normally do. Um, there's a great program by Mercy Corps that I think you were alluding to with food vendors in Dhaka, um, which was really innovative and bright and fresh. And I think that the, the urban, urban response really calls for that approach. Great. Now, uh, we'll follow the same process. We're going to take two or three questions at a time uh, and then uh, give our panelists a chance to answer. And then we'll take a few more. In the front here, yes. They'll get, and please identify who you are, and a gentle reminder to be very short <laughs> to the question. It's a complex question. We are a private sector. We work in a mega city, Lagos, but quite a lot in Nigeria um, with some of the folks in the room. My question is, there's a lot of, it's, it's the sexy thing to talk about innovative partnerships with the private sector, but the reality is the private sector only invests when there's a return on investment. Mm -hmm. And to, to nutrition is not something, the supply side is easy, there's usually a good return on investment. The demand side for nutrition doesn't generally have an apparent return on investment. So in the call for uh, social protections, so in places where you have basically a public sector need to meet a nutrition demand, uh, how can the private sector engage there? Do you see uh, uses of things like impact bonds, capital markets that have actually been successful? Um, or how do you actually see the private sector engaging in, in those concepts? Great. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Please. Thank you. Uh, hello. I'm Bill Hare from the University of the District of Columbia. Actually, I'm the Associate Dean in the College of Ag, Urban Sustainability and Environmental Sciences. So one thing I didn't hear anyone say or talk about is education and the role of universities in this food security process. Mm -hmm. Someone brought up the point about the district and the food desert area. So in terms of our university, one of the things that we're doing, we, we have what we call an urban food hub solution that integrates food production food preparation, value addition, food 
distribution and food waste management as a hub to solve nutritional problems. And I say that because the other thing that wasn't mentioned is nutrient density as it relates to food security. So the longer it takes to get your food from farm to fork, Someone? Oh, okay. Amy. Amy Simmons from Agree and several other places. But I want to return to a point that Mark made, which I thought was referring to a conference that was held at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, a couple of years ago called Feeding the Cities. And I thought your, I thought your point, I thought your point was very well taken, that in fact it's not just taking food from a production area and putting it into the cities, but it's a more complicated mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think it tied into what Gloria was talking about, urbanization and being inherent, an inherent part of economic transformation. So what I'm hearing from all of you is really a call for a much more multi-sectoral approach to food security, a much more perhaps multi-sectoral approach to food systems, mm -hmm. including WASH, including okay. social protection, sure. including commercial systems, including maybe even things like impact bonds to, to deal with certain areas and certain challenges which are not there. But I guess it's just a question. You talked about the evolution of thinking, Mark, which is why I started with you. Do you think that, in fact, we've learned enough in the last five years of sort of taking food security head on in the international arena and really coming up with a next generation idea, a next generation concept, which is more multi-sectoral, which is more linked to the economic transformation process, which is, takes into account things like income inequities, which leave slums behind, and yeah. at the same time as rich people are living in 80-story buildings with giant diesel generators outside, making sure the elevators work. So I guess it's just a question to see whether we're, we're there. Is this, is this conversation that yeah. we're having the start of something big? Who? Mm -hmm. You want to start? Yeah. Go ahead. Emmy, um, the, the project that I started piloting and talked about, the strengthening urban resilience for growth with equity, is exactly that. It's trying the idea of you know all of the projects in AID that ranges from education to nutrition to health to environment, climate change, and of course economic growth, they're all in the cities, the secondary cities that we are working in with the objective of environment, uh, achieving uh, food security, um, based on nutrition, access, and supply, um, um, environmental resilience, um, and, um, and of course, uh, sustainable um, and inclusive economic growth. Uh, trying to get investors to come in to create um, job opportunities mm -hmm. and, and trying to make the agriculture production <coughs> more efficient um, so that incomes will be more for the farmers that grow them. We're testing that idea. We uh, piloted it in three cities first, and it worked. Investors actually did come. Uh, the local governments um, actually adopted via 
anti-corruption efforts and streamlining business processes, etc. Um, and the private sector came, the, pop, the, the local private sector came and, and worked in the cities. Coca-Cola actually came and uh, worked on the water <coughs> side um, because that's part of nutrition, uh, clean water, improving access to clean water uh, to work in those cities with us. Um, it's been successful in the three pilot areas and just before I left, scaled it up uh, to have many more cities to continue to see if that new generation of thinking about achieving inclusive growth and <coughs> sustainability and food security can actually uh, be done through the integration of different sectors working together and the government, the private sector and um, assistance from, from, from us. So, uh, on the question of how to involve the <coughs> private sector in uh, nutrition and perhaps via social protection, uh, I can give you a domestic example of how that works. Uh, there is something called the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC. Uh, it's basically a voucher program, as is done internationally also now. So. It's not just a voucher linked to food, but it's to particular foods. Um, it uh, happens to be the largest purchaser of infant formula in the United States, uh, although it also promotes breastfeeding. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, so, so, I mean, it basically empowers uh, low-income people, uh, mothers with children up to a certain age, and the kids themselves to go to not only grocery stores, but also farmers' markets. Uh, it only covers certain kinds of foods, so the idea is to help promote uh, a diverse and balanced diet. Um, and uh, yes, I think something similar can be replicated in developing countries. It's not exclusively urban, but most of the people involved in WIC are urban dwellers. Um, on the uh, uh, Dean's question, uh, I mean, I, I can give you an example of engaging a university in this. Uh, so uh, coming back to Ibadan in uh, uh, Nigeria, and I have to thank Emmy for making me aware of this. Uh, so there is a large international agricultural research institution, the International Institute mm -hmm. for Tropical Agriculture in Ibadan. Uh, they have an agriculture and health research program. Uh, but they don't have any nutritionists on their staff, uh, so uh, they engage the nutrition department uh, in the medical school at the University of Ibadan. I mean, it's uh, uh, actually uh, uh, looking at how to make uh, food, not just for the cities, but in general, uh, more nutritious, more healthy. Uh, so uh, I think there's a lot of scope, not only to engage uh, U.S. universities, uh, uh, but universities in the developing world uh, in this, and uh, most universities are located in cities, so uh, there's, there's a, a natural linkage, and, and some of the sorts of things uh, you said you're working on on food deserts, I mean, I think, again, that's mm -hmm. yes. something that's not limited to the United States where a university can be involved. And then to Emmy's question, I mean, I think the short answer is no. We haven't learned <laughs> enough. We need to learn more. Uh, we talked about lack of data. Uh, 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 but I think, uh, 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 you know, it's not just our thinking about food security, but the, the institutions and, and, and thinking about uh, uh, what the issues Ashley was talking about. I mean, 
UNHCR and NGOs like both of our organizations, we still think, oh, refugees, so they go to camps somewhere away from the cities. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's very mm -hmm. easy mm -hmm. to provide services because they're in camps. Well, no, uh, I mean, the, the refugees from Syria being an excellent example, mm -hmm. most of them are not, you know, even though Zatari is this huge sprawling camp, but the majority are mm -hmm. not in camps. And we have to adjust our thinking and our <coughs> organizational responses to fulfill that thinking accordingly. Mm -hmm. Actually. Um, I can really only answer one out of the three, so I'm going to try my best, um, <laughs> given that I work for an NGO. Um, and that's the, private, that's the private partnership in saying the return on investment. And the example I will give is actually not from my organization. Um, it's from Mercy Corps. It's from Indonesia. And it was a child survival health grants program. Um, that was given to Mercy Corps um, for food vendors who was marketed towards children in um, urban centers in Indonesia because in, in this part of the world, they, mothers would give their children money to buy food and it's not uncommon and kids would make terrible choices. So you're seeing tooth decay and levels of obesity because kids would would get things that would taste good, and of course that's what you're going to gravitate towards. So it's a very small um, $1.5 million over five years that they marketed food vendors for kids at children's level, so you bring everything down, you have puppet shows, you have seats for children, and you do kind of a show presentation on healthy foods, and if you make it into an entertaining learning experience, then children would begin to gravitate towards that. So what actually happened is, I think halfway through or towards the end of the program, they have a German private company now investing in this program because you have a line of food truck vendors. They need a place to prepare their food. They're actually generating money from the children and educating their mothers about food, um, the levels of cavities and health and health disparities went down, but now they're trying this in other different in, in other different urban settings for kids. So it was a really innovative, smart program that had some buy-in um, and that was replicable in a lot of different places. Um, and if you're interested, I can tell you more about it. But, yeah. Other questions? Yes, please. We'll, over here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Easy Siddiqui at CSIS here. Uh, Fascinating discussion, and thank you for holding this uh, session. Uh, I have to just say that uh, the world's largest uh, food security program in India, which was just actually expanded in 19, 2013 by the Indian Parliament, uh, this program actually uh, uh, and it has not come up in discussion. I was just in India last month, and I have to tell you, uh, it has expanded its scope, and a lot of it has to do because what has happened, the awareness after 2008-2009 riots and all this, many of the governments have actually put programs for food security on their, their front of their programs. Mm -hmm. So I think urban um, uh, food insecurity was there for a long time, but I think it has come mm -hmm. to the forefront because of what happened in Tunisia, and, and I think that was referenced earlier. So. I think the biggest challenges, uh, some of you mentioned, actually Schengen, before he left, was the nutritional aspect. How do we provide, not ample food, but how do you provide nutritious food? Mm -hmm. And also food safety breakdowns, which I think we are seeing in the most yeah. advanced country, like the US in Boston with the, you know, the, the Chipotle's. <laughs> so I think you can imagine the threat to food security, and all food safety is, is there inherent, and I think those are the two issues which, I, in my opinion, are some of the top most priorities for these large feeding programs, food security programs. How do you provide <coughs> nutritious food and a safe food? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, in the back. Yes. I don't think I need. I can talk loud. I don't think I need that. <laughs> I'm sure. It helps. Okay, I'm fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hello again. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I hit hit my echo. I know. He's somewhere in New York. Um, price, cost. No, you can have all the food in the world, but you have no money. You're going to be hungry. Right. And so I've been to Lagos, I've been to Nigeria, I've been to Abuja, I've been to Southeast DC here. Let me tell you a small story, just a quick story. I used to be in the army. I got injured in 2003. And so I got discharged without anyone telling me. You're discharged from the army, so I had no money. I only had a few money in my account, and I was eating bread and uh, mayonnaise for about two months. I was so hungry, I couldn't even apply for jobs anymore. You know, till someone said, here's some money, and I began to eat better, and I applied for jobs, and I had my faculty back in sense. And so food security ties into clinical security. And so if you're hungry, you can't work. Sure. I go to Southeast DC, I go to you know, Detroit, I go to Lagos, Nigeria. People are poor, and they can't buy for food. And so how do we tie hunger into economical vitality? Over here. Thank you. Rose Cadende, um, independent. Um, I, I want to recognize and appreciate everybody's focus on nutrition. I think it's really important. I think if we are going to address this issue of hunger and malnutrition and food security, I think the starting point is nutrition because if we're able to educate people enough for them to understand that if I have, I'm from Burundi, by the way, so if I have only, yes, you feel sorry for me. Um, no, you, no, you don't, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so if you have a thousand, say, a, a thousand Burundi francs, and you're going to the market, make the best of that thousand Burundi francs mm -hmm. because I can go there and buy a loaf of bread or I can go buy, you know, as much vegetable as a thousand Burundi francs will give me. Mm -hmm. So I think in our work, especially those of us who actually do a lot of international, international community development work, <laughs> I think it is important that we focus on that, educating people, somebody was talking about education, it's very important that people understand the, really va the real value and benefits of using the limited resources in the most effective way so that they don't sacrifice nutrition. That's one point, and I'm sorry, I hope I can get a second point, yes? Thank you. So second point is, um, again, looking at the example of Burundi um, and, and other countries where I have worked, I see a lot of food that's wasted during harvest time. Mm -hmm. And I would like to ask if you could address that issue. And one thing that runs to my head, to my mind, often is what can I do during harvest time so that I can actually rescue these people who are selling so much, have so much on the market and so few people who are ready to buy. So engaging that area as well, I would like to hear your feedback. Thank you very much. Thank you. Who would like? 
There's one more. Should we take that one more? <laughs> Hi, this is Jasmine with the Aegis Health Security. And I just feel like oftentimes when we're tackling these issues, um, it's very obscure in the sense that we still have hunger issues here in Washington, D.C. And I would love just to have like a platform to address one city at a time. I think that's really how we tackle it, you know, like solving these type of global issue at a local level starting at home and I would love to see like maybe next year we can say there's no more hungry issues here especially the children here in this city and um, so one of organization I know has a project like that but I struggle to understand how to work together and collaborate and have the best practices like from the Philippines from the uh, you know the food truck that you talked about and I think there's great ideas but how do we actually work together to make an improvement that's measurable. Thank you. Who would like to start? <laughs> I, I think I wanted to combine the nutrition and the income, lack of income. Mm -hmm. um, I remember my first lesson on food security, what, this food, what is food security from Michigan State uh, University was it has three components. Uh, improving supply, which is, seems to be the focus uh, of a lot of the food security projects right now improving access, which would include both physical and economic access, which is, I think, what you were referring to. You could have all the food available. If you can't buy it, you can't have access to it, it you really still are food insecure. And for the most part, I think all of us in this room are probably food secure because of our income, uh, because we, we decided not to do the supply part, where we don't grow our own food, we do something else uh, so that we will have income to access the food. And then the last, but not the least, I mean, they're all equally important, is nutrition. You can be eating all, you can be, uh, you have all, all the money that you would need to be able to buy the food, you have access to it, but if you're sick or you're eating the wrong food, you still are not food secure. And so I think that when we talk about food security, we should uh, tackle uh, all three of them. And I think we need to supplement or augment current focus on increasing agricultural production with the two others and uh, uh, augment the focus on rural, rural sector with urban uh, because there's food insecurity in both, in both areas. Um, and I think that's, I wanted to address the two, the two those two issues that were raised. Mark? Okay, well, uh, to come back to nutrition, uh, as our friends at UNICEF will tell us, uh, nutrition is not just about uh, the food you eat and uh, how balanced your diet is, but it also is a question of uh, the not only access to health care, but having a healthy environment and uh, particularly for children, uh, uh, appropriate care. So bringing this back to the cities then, um, well, uh, low-income neighborhoods, slums in cities uh, often have very poor sanitation. Uh, it's very difficult to get access to health care. It's not just a matter of food availability or even access to food, but the entire causal chain of malnutrition is uh, there, and so addressing the more general uh, living conditions and well-being of urban people is important to their nutrition. Uh, I'd, I'd also uh, like to say 
just a little bit about uh, uh, the, the problems of poverty and uh, uh, food insecurity in the United States. Uh, I can only speak for my organization, uh, Oxfam America. We uh, have a domestic program that focuses on uh, uh, working conditions for low-income people. Uh, uh, we just did a study of the chicken industry in the United States focusing on the uh, workplace safety and, and low, low wages. Uh, we work a lot in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico region uh, uh, as well. So um, uh, although Oxfam primarily focuses uh, on international development, we, we do look at uh, poverty in the United States as well. Um, I can, I think, take the first two as well, maybe just give a first, thank you for your service, uh, sir. Um, and to talk a little bit about the, the, the problem of hunger, you know, it's so pervasive that you're not able to apply for jobs. Some of the integrated programming that a lot of organizations will offer is to have a livelihoods aspect. So not only to do food security or food programming, is, but to have a livelihoods aspect as well. Some small business, something to generate some income so that you'll be able to purchase food. This is, a, this is some of the programs that I know a lot of organizations offer. Also, another point for nutrition programming for our organization um, is things like PD Hearth, where you're bringing people together to teach them about the nutrition of food in a big group setting where, you're, where everyone is learning, teaching children about choices, teaching women or men um, how to prepare food and what not to do. Um, the question of food waste in that full circle, um, I think, needs to be emphasized more. I think it's a, it's a it's a big problem in the United States with the amounts of waste and the you know expired the the expiration dates are uh, arbitrary essentially. Um, but I do think that as we as we put more integrated holistic programming, that that that's a huge need. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time. So what I would like to do is, if you wish, give the last word to the panelists. So if you have a final thought or an idea or something you'd like to say. <laughs> Now is the, it's all yours. I I um, I really appreciate this because it is timely. It is time that we focus on the broad range of very of of aspects of food insecurity uh, around the world and um, the the lack of focus on urban. I think has been is is really worth looking at and uh, trying to take advantage of, as I said earlier, the economic transformation process to work to work this in the favor of more inclusive growth, more food secure populations, and a more environmentally uh, sustainable kind of a growth strategy. No, I I, I think I'd just add uh, to what's already been said that. Uh, uh, thinking back to the first panel, uh, uh, Schengen pointed out that the, the majority of poor and food insecure people in the world remain rural, and I, I think it's important uh, not to uh, say, well, we're only going to focus on rural areas, or we're only going to focus on urban areas, or we're only going to focus on obesity, not stunting, or only on stunting, not... Uh, uh, but of course, as Nancy pointed out, uh, we do live in a world of finite resources, so uh, 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 it is important to set priorities as well. And I think if we look at the demographic trends in the world, it is urbanizing very rapidly, and too often poverty and food insecurity are traveling to the cities with the people. Mm -hmm. 
Um, something that makes me very hopeful for taking the discussion forward is the diversity in the audience today and the amount of questions and the topics that you've asked and the interest of all of you sitting here. Um, I think that it, these issues continue, the need continues to be pushed um, and people need to continue to speak up and attend or talk more about these issues more broadly so that you can start to generate the interest to address some of these problems. Good point. Please join me in thanking our panelists.